Welcome to the God's Word, our Great Heritage Podcast. The Jewish leaders in Jesus' day were divided into two main religious factions. There were the Sadducees, and this group included Caiaphas and most of the chief priests. And then there were the Pharisees, who prided themselves in how well they kept the commandments. In our last episode, we heard how Jesus answered the Sadducees when they challenged him on the teaching of the resurrection. Jesus answered by going to the scriptures. We will see Jesus do that again in his next encounter in this episode. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who did believe in the resurrection, were no doubt pleased by the answer that Jesus gave to the Sadducees, showing that scripture teaches a resurrection of the dead. In Exodus, the Lord is described as the God of Abraham, And God is not a God of the dead, but of the living, Jesus had pointed out. While the Pharisees and Sadducees made common cause in wanting to be rid of Jesus, at least some of those Pharisees must have smiled at Jesus' answer. And at least one of them, a man who belonged to that class of Pharisees known as the teachers or the experts of the law, decided to test Jesus on another matter the matter of the commandments. Let's begin with prayer. Come, Holy Spirit, and kindle in us the fire of your love. Amen. Chapter 12, verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them, that is Jesus and the Sadducees, debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked Jesus, of all the commandments Which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Remember that the Pharisees had come up with 613 laws, many of which were their additions, intended to explain and apply God's commandments to daily life. The result, however, was that these additional laws only created confusion and clutter, so that most of the common people despaired of keeping them, while the Pharisees themselves took great pride in doing so. Remember, too, that The Pharisees operated under the mistaken belief that they could somehow keep God's law well enough to merit eternal life. So with this chaos of 613 laws and the need to keep them well enough to earn God's favor, well, the question of which is the most important was a hotly debated topic among them. Jesus clears away the clutter by saying that the most important commandment is to Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. These words, quoted from Deuteronomy 6, were repeated by faithful Jews several times each day in their devotions. So Jesus' answer is familiar and expected. 
But the unexpected and surprising part of his answer came when he went on to quote Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus puts it on the same level when he says, there is no commandment greater than these. It's easy, of course, to say, I love God. No one can look into your heart to say you do or don't. But how do we show our love for God? The first three of the Ten Commandments give some insight, don't they? Do we obey God above all others? Do we trust in him above all others? Do we use his name to pray, praise, and give thanks? Do we regard his word as sacred and gladly hear and learn it? Do we do so with all our being? How difficult is it to love God that completely? It's impossible for us. But God also requires that we love our neighbor. And here, commandments 4 through 10 give insight into God's will for us. Our love for God usually becomes visible in our actions toward others. God would have us honor our parents, help our neighbor, honor and love our spouse, speak well of others, and be content with our possessions and our place in life. The words, love your neighbor as yourself, eliminate any thought that I might keep this commandment. By nature, I am so self-centered, I'm hardly aware of it as I go about my daily routine. My impatience with others gives me away. I do not consistently put the needs of others ahead of my own needs. Daniel Deutschlander has a great line here in his commentary. Do you begin to smell the roast? Can you see where Jesus wants to take this expert in the law? Verse 32. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Then we're told, from then on, no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. This expert in the law remembered God's warnings in the Old Testament that outwardly observing rituals and rites dare not take the place of loving our neighbor. It is a strong warning to us not to let our Sunday worship become an empty routine, our going through the motions that has no impact on our attitudes and behaviors Monday through Saturday. God's word leads us to true repentance. The forgiveness we find in Christ leads us to want to serve Christ and to serve our neighbor. Jesus said that this man was not far from the kingdom. Close, but he missed the main point of the law to show us our sin and our need of a Savior. We have not loved the Lord, not completely, not with all our being. And we have clearly not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We need a Savior, someone to rescue us from our condemnation. Thank God we have one in Jesus. Jesus, who kept God's will perfectly in our place, 
and then removed our punishment by taking that punishment on himself. This expert in the law was so close. He recognized that thoughtlessly going through the motions of religious rites was no substitute for actually keeping the law. Now, if only he would recognize his sin and turn to Jesus. But he is still outside the kingdom because he was still looking at the commandments as the ladder we climb to eternal life. The Pharisees and Sadducees were unable to trip Jesus up. Only one thing then left to do, arrest and kill him. But first, Jesus had a question for them. Verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to Jesus with delight. This has been the question throughout Mark's gospel. Who is Christ? Jesus had already given them his answer, and they hated him for it. In two days, they will charge him before the Jewish ruling council of blasphemy for saying it. But here Jesus proves it from Scripture. The religious teachers taught that Christ was the son of David and only a human Messiah, a human Messiah who would restore Israel to her former, former political glory. Jesus points out, and they didn't know the scriptures very well. In Psalm 110, David calls the Christ his Lord, something he wouldn't do if he was only a, a human Messiah. I'm guessing most of us would not say to our son, my Lord. The only way David would call his descendant Lord was if that descendant were also the Son of God. Verse 38. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Here is a strong warning for Christian pastors and teachers today. Our lives are to be lives of humble service to others, not lives of seeking earthly accolades. Those in the ministry who cover up greed with outward piety may fool some people, even most people, but they will not fool God. Verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, 
out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Those who go around in flowing robes and like to be greeted have left, and Jesus has the chance to people watch. He sits down there in the temple courtyard, sits down opposite one of the many collection boxes where people place their offerings at the temple. And what does Jesus see? Many rich people threw in large amounts. That's not surprising. But Jesus seems not so much interested in the amount as he was in their reasons for giving. Jesus next sees a poor widow. She puts in two small copper coins, which, according to rabbinic law, was the bare minimum you were allowed to give. You you couldn't give less than what she gave. But Jesus says she gave more than the others. Can you picture the disciples scratching their heads when Jesus says that? It, It doesn't make sense. But Jesus could see what the disciples couldn't see. The wealthy givers all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything. All she had to live on, Jesus said. The big givers went home to a nice warm house, a full fridge, and a cozy bed. They gave a lot, but they had a lot left over. They gave some of the frosting on the cake, but they still had both cake and extra frosting left over. The widow was different. She didn't give some frosting off the cake because she didn't have any cake. Instead, she gave her daily bread money. She gave until she had nothing left. No. No, that's wrong. That's all wrong. At that moment, she still had everything. She had her Lord. She had God's promises. And she had God's gift of faith in her heart to trust those promises. The point she gave because she trusted her Lord's ability to care for her. Let's ask the hard question here. Why do I struggle to give God my first fruits? Why do I struggle to practice proportionate giving, to practice sacrificial giving? Is it because I struggle to believe that God will really take care of me? Two copper coins would have bought you a sparrow in the marketplace. Jesus says to you, you are worth more than many sparrows. Then he went to the cross and showed you exactly what you are worth to him, as he gave everything to make you his for all eternity. He didn't just give two coins, or a tithe. He gave his last breath to forgive these hearts of ours that love copper more than Christ, silver more than the Savior. He gave us everything so that he might have us in heaven with him forever. Oh, and, and Jesus knows all, knows all about our needs. Just three days after watching the widow give her gift at the temple, he looked down from the cross on another widow, his mother, And even with his hands nailed to the cross, he opened his hands and took care of her future needs. And to this day, he opens his nail-pierced hands and fills our desires, gives us all sorts of good things. He even smiles and invites us to help him in his work 
of sharing this good news with others. He invites us to help by bringing our offerings. Next week, chapter 13, as Jesus continues his teaching on Tuesday of Holy Week and tells us of the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you.